I think that's the first step. Putin and the commissioner Lvova Belova. I think that the reason for it is because if you look at the website of Commissioner Lvova Belova, she has photos with Putin and they had had a couple of meetings with regard to the specific question. And he actually asked her to prepare uh, a bill to simplify obtaining of Russian citizenship for uh, Ukrainian children. So it is on the record. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Today, we want to look at the central theme in the ICC's arrest warrant against Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Children's Rights Commissioner Maria Lvova-Belova, issued around a month ago. And these are the reports of forcible transfer of Ukrainian children to Russia. To help with this, we have two scholars, uh, researchers who have delved into all the issues, and we'll get to the background a little later, but let's introduce our guests for today. And we start with... Yulia Yoffa. Hi, Yulia. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. It's nice to be here. Yulia is an assistant professor of law at University College London, and she wrote an article, Forcible Transferring of Ukrainian Children to the Russian Federation, a Genocide? Question mark, which is due to come out soon in one of the major journals. And she's a Ukrainian native, and she's worked with the UNHCR in Ukraine and Bosnia. Before course, she went off into academia, and she did some clerking for Judge Crawford here in The Hague at the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. And we also have uh, Nathaniel Raymond. Hi, Nathaniel. Hi there. Great to be here. Nathaniel is the executive director of the Humanitarian Research Lab of the Yale School of Public Health, and his Twitter bio says he researches mass atrocity response ops, data governance, and humanitarian aid. His work at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative previously, where he was part of a project that some of our listeners might know, the Satellite Sentinel Project, which used satellite images to identify and document attacks on villages in Sudan and South Sudan. He has also worked for Physicians for Human Rights, leading investigations into the role of U.S. health professionals in the Bush administration's enhanced interrogation program, which we and Google suggest you should call torture. Um, and for today's topic, it's good to know that he is one of the authors of the February report, Russia's Systematic Program for the Re-Education and Adoption of Ukraine's Children by Yale's Conflict Observatory. So just to make sure that we're all on the same page, I'm sure there's lots of detail that we're going to go into, but uh, here's just uh, the cliff notes, as uh, Steph puts it. In both the research that we've described there and your, the paper that you're writing, Yulia, you're both looking at this situation after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February last year, February 24th, 2022. And it was fairly soon after that that we got reports that began to emerge of the children from state medical institutions, from orphanages being moved to Russia for quote-unquote safety reasons. And then more storage started to emerge of children being brought to Russia or to the Russian-controlled areas like Crimea for a number of reasons. 
and there's quite a lot of attention that we've seen over the year from war crimes investigators into this um, who've been summarising what is known about this. So let me kick off with Nathaniel. From your research, what categories of children do you think that we're talking about being transferred? And could you summarise what the Russian explanation is for it? The first group that received a lot of attention, we can call the uh, re-education camp kids, and they are primarily from Luhansk and Donetsk. And they are, in many cases, they do return home, but in 10% of the 41 uh, re-education sites we identified, there were children that were being put into foster or adoption programs. Uh, The second group, known as the evacuees, which make up, I think, the majority of the children that we know now have been or are being transferred are uh, from Ukraine's state institutions, primarily in Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, Kherson, and Mariupol, that were captured by Russia in the initial phase of the evasion. Those children, we believe, and the Ukrainian government believes, I think reflected in their number, which is now about 19,000, are the majority of the children in the adoption and foster pipeline. The third and fourth groups we know less about We know they exist, but we don't have a baseline number for them. And uh, those are children that were separated from their parents intentionally in the case of filtration operations in Donetsk Oblast uh, soon after the fall of Mariupol. And the fourth group are those who were picked up, captured by Russian military in the course of combat operations. We know that there are children in the third and fourth group. We do not know how many. Nathaniel, can I just check with you? These are very different kinds of groups of children. Are there different explanations from the Russians uh, for each of these different groups? Or is there one general explanation that covers them all that the Russians have put out so far? I would say there's two explanations that the kids across all four groups fall into. One is that they were temporarily evacuated in some cases, and often there was the use of medical treatment as an excuse for that evacuation, but they were put in the category of temporary evacuation or part of a short-term re-education program in the camps. So that's sort of justification one. Justification two is that these kids are orphans, as defined by Russia. They do not have other guardians, and that Russia is performing a humanitarian service by ensuring that they have permanent families or at least foster families. In both cases, the law, and, and Yulia can talk more about this, but the law is clear that they each excuse represents a war crime, at least, regardless of its temporality. The fact of the matter is that the Geneva Conventions are clear that Russia should not be taking into its custody children from the other party to a conflict, even if it's for short-term purposes. They're supposed to transfer them back to their country of origin or to a third-party country, um, and they're supposed to register them. They've done none of that in both cases. Indeed, Julia, I was about to say, uh, if we play the devil's advocate, we could say, oh, isn't it uh, nice for these kids that they can get away to summer camps uh, and the parents have given some form of consent. So, you know, that uh, 
that seems like that may be going on with parental consent. Nathan said, in both cases, the law is very clear. Can you expand a little bit on that? What are exactly the laws in, in the Geneva Convention? And, and for the listeners who are not as, as international law geeks as we are, obviously, uh, the Geneva Conventions are the things that rule over what we would call war crimes. So we're talking about the war crimes category here. Yes, uh, Nathaniel is uh, absolutely correct. Uh, so Geneva Convention, uh, in particular Geneva Convention Number no. Four and the Additional Protocol One, uh, they are, they include very precise conditions uh, when children can be uh, evacuated or they can't be deported. They can be evacuated, as Nathaniel said, they can be uh, evacuated temporarily, but the preference should definitely be with, uh, uh, in this case, with Ukraine or with a third party. Uh, there is no indication that Russia ever tried to involve a third party to evacuate those children. And I think uh, there are also credible reports that the Ukrainian side offered on multiple occasions to evacuate these children to if they are separated and were alone to Ukrainian territory. Uh, there are also reports that children and generally people from occupied territories were unable to leave to Ukrainian side because there were attacks on humanitarian corridors. So uh, effectively, this... Uh, a part of the conditions was violated. But uh, uh, again, even if the evacuation is legal, there are certain criteria. And as Nathaniel mentioned, it is uh, required to have specific ID cards for each child, which includes really specific lengthy information about each child. And there, uh, the Russian party would have uh, had to cooperate also with ICRC and to inform them and to involve international partners so that in the future these children could be reunited with their families. So family life and family relations are also very important in this uh, sense. So again, uh, international humanitarian law provides that uh, family unity should be preserved as much as possible. But if children are separated, then children should be in touch with their family members. But uh, from what I understand, in a lot of cases, children were not allowed or were unable to contact their families, including in the camps where uh, allegedly the consent was given. And uh, I think that was also raised in the re in the report that Nathaniel co-authored that uh, we should really cha challenge the validity of the consent because, again, this is the consent that was given uh, during the armed conflict, during the hostilities. Uh, so uh, it is very unlikely that it was true consent and it was enforced. Uh, and finally, I think uh, one of the uh, requirements of evacuation would be also to make sure that education is in the same condition for the population that is evacuated. Uh, so for Ukrainian children, it means education in Ukrainian language, in Ukrainian curriculum. But what we see is the opposite. It's uh, re-education and education in Russian, in Russian curriculum, and also some patriotic education and military education even. So uh, again, even if uh, we could say that this is temporary and uh, uh, that was the only opportunity to save those children. All these conditions haven't been met in these circumstances, I would argue. What kind of numbers are we talking about here? I can imagine in the kind of the fog of war that it's been difficult to assess exactly what number we're speaking about and what kind of proportion of the total number of kids in Ukraine, that is. Nathaniel, yeah, in your report, what kind of numbers are you giving to this? We identified 6,000 children that at some point had been in the re-education camps. The Ukrainian number now primarily, I believe, built 
on those that have been in state institutions as the majority of this number is 19,000. And so conservatively, if you just add those two cohorts together and, and pro provide a sum, it's about 25,000. Now, I think those numbers are extremely low. And I think they're low for three reasons. One is, let's say the 25,000 number across group one and group two, the camp kids and the evacuees is accurate. Well, it doesn't include the kids who are separated in filtration, and it doesn't include those who are picked up on the battlefield. So we have no baseline. Those are two variables in this equation, X and Y, that we can't even estimate. And then I think that the first two groups, we know that in terms of the facilities that we were observing, at the time, and I can say this publicly, at the time we um, stopped investigating on the report and moved to publish, we had over 78 locations identified, and we only presented the high confidence ones. And so we're continuing to investigate that, and that means that our number of facilities, which stretch from the Black Sea to the Pacific, over 3,500, 3,900 miles, some of them closer to Alaska than to Siberia or Moscow, let alone Ukraine, means that we, we know facility-wise, it's bigger, almost by double, at least. And so even if you conservatively say that, okay, let's say apples to apples, well, that's another 6,000. And that's even a back-of-the-envelope estimate. And so the logistical capacity, and I want to be clear here, of the system, and it is a system, it is a network of facilities that Russia has built, can hold far more than the numbers that we have. And so right now we're at tip of the iceberg mode. I believe one year from now, hopefully we will we'll look back on these numbers like they're you know rustic or naive. I think they're they're extremely small compared to the reality. And your research is continuing, I assume. You're still looking into if you can give more figures or update at some point in the future. Yes, I think we're at a point now in our research where we're on a whole other level compared to where we were when we did this report, that we stand by every word in the report. But having done that report, we have more insight, and I have to be vague about this for the moment, but more insight into how we might count them. And, and I, I, think we, I think we are on the pathway to being able to get better numbers. But even then, those numbers are still going to be a portion, a fraction. Very much an issue of watch this space in that case. So on March 17th, the International Criminal Court announced that it issued an arrest warrant against Putin and Lvova Belova. Much of the details are still under seal, but the press release says they are charged with the war crimes of unlawful deportation of population, in brackets children, and the unlawful transfer of population, in brackets children, from the occupied areas of Ukraine to the Russian Federation. And they say it is based on incidents involving hundreds of children. Now, Yulia, the ICC is looking into war crimes. Um, in your uh, article, you say this could maybe also be legally classified as uh, an element of genocide. Can you walk us through how you get there? 
First of all, um, it, it is necessary to acknowledge that forcible transfer of children uh, to Russia now, I think it can qualify it, can qualify to be a number of crimes. So I, I think it, it is possible to qual- qualify it as a war crime, uh, potentially as a crime against humanity and also a violation of a number of the provisions of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, including Article 8, which is the right to identity. But uh, I looked into genocide specifically because, well, uh, obviously I'm Ukrainian and I have been watching what Russian officials uh, are saying about this war for a long time, uh, since 2014. And uh, the rhetoric has been always very, well, anti-Ukrainian. And uh, But I think what made me think of genocide was uh, the use of the word denazification uh, by Putin uh, in his speeches. And that was announced as uh, the aim of this special military operation uh, that is the invasion that started in February 2022. So from looking at the uh, Putin's speeches, but also uh, some of the statements of uh, state officials and uh, of Russian state media, uh, because it's all controlled and financed by Russian government and nothing can appear there without the instruction of uh, the office of the president of Russia. They started talking about densification and uh, what they meant by it, if I simplify, is that Ukrainians that who don't think that they're Russian, they're Nazis, and they should be eliminated, or uh, Ukraine should be uh, get rid of those people. And that very much uh, sounded like an attack on collectivity uh, of Ukrainians, and not as an, in a way, an individual crime. So obviously, in armed conflicts, uh, war crimes appear, uh, but uh, in this case, it did seem to be, uh, especially in the information campaign, it did seem to be very much the attack on collective identity of Ukrainians. And of course, with uh, the conversations on uh, the nazification, there were a lot of conversation about that, uh, again, Ukraine is not a real country, that it was founded by Lenin, uh, Ukrainian is not a real language, Ukrainians don't have any culture, uh, and again, that they don't exist, and they're just Russians, but they forgot about it. So a lot of this was on the background. And then I think I could see that, especially since the February, uh, since February 2022, there was a lot of dehumanization as well uh, in, uh, again, in Russian media, but also state officials where uh, Ukrainians were called subhumans. And a lot of rhetoric just reminded me of Rwandan genocide and uh, what Nazis uh, talked about when they talked about uh, the other. So I, I always sort of looked at it from that side. And obviously, forcible transfer of children, I think it's not the only punishable act that could be qualified as genocide. And now a lot of researchers are working on other punishable uh, acts So because there are also killing and bodily harm that well, widespread sexual violence. So those could be also qualified uh, as genocide under Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. So again, I looked at the, the rhetoric of the Russian government, Russian president. And uh, again, as, as everyone knows, who knows anything about international law, uh, genocide is very difficult to prove because of exactly this special intent uh, an intent to destroy a group as such, uh, in part or as a whole. So I think that at least in this case, because, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, later on, Russian government is very good at documenting everything uh, that they're doing and all their motives. So that's why I looked uh, particularly into genocide and not war crime. But again, I don't di- dispute that it could potentially also qualify as a war crime.
And you mentioned there the president, you've mentioned the presidency, and you've mentioned kind of levels of Russian government, Yulia. Is the ICC targeting the right people by suggesting that it's Putin and the Children's Commissioner who are the right people? Or would there be other individuals you think that could be targeted? I think that uh, uh, that's the first step, Putin and the Commissioner Lvova Belova. I think that uh, the reason for it uh, also uh, is because if you look at the website of Commissioner Lvova Belova, she has uh, photos with Putin and they had had a couple of meetings with regard to the specific question. And he actually asked her to prepare uh, a bill to simplify uh, obtaining of Russian citizenship for uh, Ukrainian children. So it is on the record that he was, in a way, giving her orders to forcibly transfer Ukrainian children. And of course, uh, Maria Lvova-Bilova, the commissioner, she's been uh, spearheading this effort and uh, approaching it, in, as Nathaniel said, in a very systemic way and documenting it all uh, on the website. I, I would say it was... Uh, a very smart move on the part of the ICC to issue a warrant not only for Putin, but also for Commissioner Lvova Belova, because I think Putin might be not afraid or uh, it won't influence his decision making after this. But I think for regular Russian bureaucrats who work within children's rights or family protection on some local levels, uh, I think they might actually get scared and maybe rethink some of those ways. But obviously, uh, and I think that's also what is mentioned in the in the report that Nathaniel co-authored, that it is a very systemic approach to forcible transfer of children. There is a minister of education involved. There are people on all levels of government, local government. So all those people would potentially would violate uh, all these uh, provisions of international law. And I, I would expect that there will be more warrants. But I think uh, with regard to particularly um, Commissioner Lvova Bilova, I think that was also maybe a sign for others that potentially that they can stop what they're doing. You foreshadowed my question to Nathaniel. In your research, you say this operation is centrally coordinated by Russia's federal government and involves every level of government. And the research IDs dozens of uh, Russian officials. Do you uh, think the ICC is targeting the right people with the tip of the iceberg? Or do you expect them, do you think they should expand or look harder into other people as well? I want to be very precise in how I answer this question. I, I think as the ICC continues to investigate this case, a proper investigation will find additional individuals to charge at multiple levels of the chain of command. And that said, I think that the initial charging by Kareem Khan and the ICC was conservative in a good way. And was was smart in it, what I would call, from a war crimes investigator's perspective, I'm not a prosecutor, but from an investigator's perspective, it was a prosecutorial setting of the table for what comes next that was very smart. And I think that given the level of inculpatory evidence that Yulia references, particularly in terms of Putin's prefacing actions that show, regardless of the question of genocide, overall, the special intent in the component act of transfer that is a prima facie level violation in, in the sense that he did 
the bill that Yulia mentioned to make it easier to obtain Russian citizenship and to allow legally to adopt a Ukrainian child added in a $200 a month equivalent social benefit for those who fostered or adopted. Specifically, in the January 1st speech, his New Year's Day speech this year, praised the program, asked for its expansion. After our report came out, his press availability with Maria Lvova Belova, the part that didn't get much international attention after she said, I adopted a 15-year-old child, now I know what it means to be the mother of a Donbass child. At the end of that tape, which really was not aired, they say, Putin asks Maria Lvova-Belova, how is the military training program in Chechnya going for the Ukrainian boys? And she says, it's going great. And he says, okay, let's expand it by 2,000 Ukrainian and Russian boys. And so from the ICC perspective, you have the perp on camera, basically identifying the elements and saying, I did this, I did this, I did this. And so the, the chain of command here, I think the most important part of our report going forward will be that chain of command graph. And we, we identify 12 in that graph. We have 90 people under investigation and all the way down to those who were identifying children at a local level for transfer, including teachers. And we removed those names for the protection of the individuals who are involved in recruitment at a local level. But we, we believe that we can build an additional richness, particularly at that regional to mayoral level, where this sort of six sister cities program was going on, where while Kremlin was providing this overall guidance, what was happening at the regional and mayoral level is they were the implementers, often with municipal budgets, to pay for the buses, to pay for the physical transfer of the children. And you know, when we're attacked by far left-wing disinformation campaigns around this report, what's fascinating, and I, I often <laughs> say, is that our primary source, 80% of the evidence in this report, is the statements of Russian officials themselves, literally geolocating what they are doing by taking VK in Telegram posts of them in the engaged in the act of transfer. <laughs> and so it is their own inculpatory evidence of their own actions, because it's really for a Russian domestic political audience. And that's what has to be understood. And Yulia, when we talked before, uh, I've talked to you for uh, my Reuters job on this. You also said that you, you're you Russian speaking, so you also uh, monitor the Russian media. And you said that the most surprising to you uh, is that the most damning evidence comes from these regional people who post what they're doing. Can you kind of describe what are what are they posting? What do you see on social media where you go? Why the hell would you post that if you know that maybe like the ICC could look at this? Yes, uh, so I totally agree with Nathaniel that I just looked at open source um, documents and most of them come from Russian officials. And of course, as I mentioned, the website of the Commissioner Lvova Belova is the biggest source of all the information because she's really uh, detailed in in terms of how she documents uh, everything she's doing, uh, including uh, the motives. As Nathaniel mentioned, there are videos of her saying how she, uh, including she adopted a child from Mariupol, but she also talked about other children from Mariupol that were brought to Russia and uh, how they uh, sang Ukrainian anthem, but they were 
taught to learn to love Russia. So, and this is all on record. But there are also obviously uh, local authorities that are posting different information on uh, forcible transfer of Ukrainian children and on their adoption. For example, there was a, a ministry of family uh, in Krasnodar region that posted that the, they have 1,000, I think, Ukrainian children that are ready for adoption in uh, all the cities. And uh, uh, in that particular post, in uh, in response to that particular post, the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine responded saying that that's uh, a violation of international law. After that, they quickly sort of put it down and said that there was a uh, hacking attack. So they never put it there. But there are just, uh, I, I think, hundreds, if not thousands, of these publications um, by local authorities or just local newspapers uh, with the meetings uh, of people and just like greeting Ukrainian children. I think uh, people might have seen also this concerts in Moscow where uh, Ukrainian children were brought to the stage from Mariupol and were made to hug Russian soldiers who just destroyed their houses. So it's all very well, again, uh, documented. I don't think no one is trying to hide anything. Uh, And I think uh, there are potentially a combination of of two things. First, I I think that uh, uh, the impunity, and I think because Russia in 2014 annexed Crimea and nothing happened, I think now they're just uh, the Russian officials and the president and the Russian leadership just doing everything uh, they want in violation of international law and post it online uh, because they don't think that there will be any uh, responsibility or punishment. And uh, the other side of it is that potentially some of these people do think that they're saving these children or protecting these children or this is in their best interest. But uh, as we already discussed, this would not uh, save them from responsibility because it would still uh, be uh, an international crime, even if they genuinely believe that they're protecting or saving these children. Can I ask a Quick question, uh, Nathaniel, about the detail of this re-education stuff. I mean, Yulia's describing their, this idea of hugging and sort of learning to love Russia, but you've also said that there's detail of, of actual military training of, of kids. So what, what are we talking about here? So there's two camps that we identified in the report, one in Crimea and the one we have the most uh, primary source documentation on is called Mountain Key, which is in Chechnya. And we have vi- videos of kids shooting guns, doing military vehicle training. And one thing, looking back at our report, which we as a team in our after action on it identified as, as a critique, is that we think the level of militarization and military training at these camps is higher than what we reported. And so in our, in our investigation, we were always conservative and going for five sources of high confidence confirmation where possible. And I think that because of that high standard, there was evidence of additional military training and militarization that didn't make it. And I think over time, we're going to see that the there's one camp that really haunts me. It's called Teddy Bear. <laughs> The, na- the name of the camp is called Teddy Bear. And as <laughs> and, and it, it has extra significance, given what Yulia was talking about with Maria Lvova-Belova's social media posts of her bringing bags of teddy bears to give the Ukrainian children as they get off the plane. Initially, when we looked at it, we thought a lot of the camps were like teddy bear. 
and younger kids and really focused on singing folk songs and visiting battlefields and that sort of stuff. But as we've gone on, that there is a, a militarization element here that I think we can't measure yet and is bigger than we know. And uh, so that, and that goes to really something that's important for your listeners to understand is that we're, we're not only talking about four groups of kids, but we're talking about age ranges from four months old to 17 years. And so as we look at the re-education camps, we also have to add a layer of age sensitivity that not all the experiences at these camps are identical because not all the camps are the same, but also not all the age groups are the same. And so we see different types of nationalist education with that military component more on the teenage side towards the 14 to 18 year olds. But we, it, it could be even, even happening with younger kids, but it's primarily focused on the teenagers from what we can see now. And Yulia, for, uh, we talked about the genocide, for genocide charge to stick, you need to prove this special intent, either from direct statement or inferred. And you argue, and I'm extremely crudely summarizing your 50-page paper here, that aside from the hate speech that you hear in Russian media and you see in the speeches, this denazification, this re-education element that is present in the camps is also pivotal for this argument that it could be a genocide. Can you explain that also? Because we talk in the media a lot about children being forced to learn Russian, uh, but obviously there is a large swath of the Ukrainian population that is Russian speaking. Does that make them Russians? Does it make them Ukrainian Russians? You know, which national group would they fall into? Yes. So uh, it is uh, uh, actually a very interesting uh, question in terms of how to establish special intent for paragraph E of Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, so forcible transfer uh, of children, because there are not many cases out there that look specifically at forcible transfer of children. So there has been some uh, litigation uh, in domestic courts uh, um, in Australia, in Canada, in the U.S. with regard to the forcible transfer or indigenous children to um, special schools. But uh, these cases uh, in the majority were not very successful. So we can't really rely on a lot of jurisprudence in terms of how courts previously looked at it. And again, the Bosnian genocide case uh, uh, looked a little bit uh, into forcible transfer of children, but they didn't find it and they looked primarily on the procreative rape. But from what I understood, and especially if you look at the preparatory work of Article 2E of the Genocide Convention, it was uh, the, the initiator of this paragraph was the Greek delegation. And they were uh, arguing for this particular provision because of uh, the experience of Greek children in uh, the Greek Civil War. And uh, this is actually very well summarized in an article by Demetrius Courtius. But basically what he explains is that in that case, the, the primary sort of uh, the central part of the special intent was uh, to take those children, but also to indoctrinate them. So re-educate them, but not necessarily in a different language, but just teach children another version of uh, history, politics, and just generally society. And in this way, uh, help the solution of their national identity. So in this case, I, I would 
imagine that similarly that's what's happening to Ukrainian children and a lot of them I assume speak Russian because they are from occupied temporarily occupied territories which are mostly Russian speaking but it's not only that the education and re-education um, is happening in Russian, but it's also happening in Russian curriculum. The Russian version of history, of politics, is presented to them. Uh, so in a way, they are being indoctrinated in the Russian society way of things. So I, I, that's why this is, a, I think, a very important part of proving special intent. But uh, more broadly, as I mentioned in my article, I argue that we can also rely on the mental element from other um, punishable acts uh, in Article 2, so uh, that accompany killings and bodily harm and inflicting conditions uh, that are dangerous for survival of Ukrainian nation. And there we can also look at re-education as part of special intent, because usually the courts establish special intent either by establishing a general uh, plan or inferring a pattern of conduct directed at the group. And in both of those, re-education and well, denial of cultural rights, destruction of cultural property is an element that is considered potentially not directly, and it's not the only element, but it is considered in interpretation and establishing of uh, special intent. And I think we've heard that the Russians have suggested maybe some details that have been put onto website by hackers and Maybe we've seen some reversals of, of policy in some cases. I'm wondering kind of what's the reaction been since the arrest warrants were made uh, public? I mean, have we seen any kind of specific attempts to conceal what might uh, have, have happened? I mean, are the Russians not talking about it so much anymore? What, what's your impression? Oh, in a, in a couple of words, they've doubled down. After the report came out, it really... In talking with our team, it, it felt like you know we were dealing with a, a hostage situation where we make a move, they make a move, but it was just stunning. And 24 years of war crimes investigation, it was the first time that I had seen a alleged perpetrator say, "Oh, you said we did this. Okay, we're going to do this." <laughs> and Maria Lvova Belova Putin conversation was about 36 hours. To 72 hours after the report came out and they basically were flaunting it and then we're going on cnn saying you can't use children as hostages or leverage and then they did the stadium event with anya the 12 year old girl from mariupol that yulia mentioned where they're forcing her to read a statement as she decompensates and has to hug uncle yuri who bombarded her city in which her mother died and so it's been move after move that way, where at any point where in past types of war crimes investigations I've been involved in, they'd be hiding the evidence. Here, they're literally putting the evidence on national television. And so, because, the, and Yulia spoke to this, they want to make it look legal. They want to make it look acceptable. And they also don't want to show that they're blinking at any point. And the only time I've seen this type of behavior is with ISIS, where ISIS would engage in killings, and then they would basically do it for social media. And we would find you know, mass graves or evidence of the committal of the crime because they were laying it right out there. And 
this is the closest to that I've ever seen in this sort of presentation of the evidence and say, okay, like it's a bar fight. What are you going to do about it, buddy? You know, shove, shove. <laughs> it's really stunning. And it creates, from an investigative perspective, a situation where as we investigate, we have to constantly be asking tough questions about child protection. Because in most investigations, the primary victims are dead and dead or displaced. And you're talking about retrospective events and retrospective risk. Here, this is a dynamic situation where the primary victims are alive. And so it, it does feel like, you know, Keanu Reeves and Dennis Hopper in Speed, you know, where is the guy going to blow up another bus? And people talk a lot about what's the motivation here. Well, there's been three motivations. Yes, the propaganda purposes, the russification purposes, but also this leverage. And that has to be understood that right now, the Russians have the sum of all fears. They have the kids. And that creates a leverage scenario, just like a bank robber with the gun to the head of a teller. And, uh, and so how do you navigate that? Um, that's our, our question every day. Yulia, how are mothers, families, etc., navigating that in Ukraine? I imagine, and how's the government navigating it? I imagine incredibly carefully. Uh, from what I've seen, and again, this is from publicly available information, my impression is that uh, different parts of the government tried to contact Lvova Bilova and the Russian government, but uh, it uh, has been unsuccessful. There were almost no replies. I think uh, Lvova Bilova did acknowledge, I think, at, at one occasion saying that she did receive the request, but children don't want to go back to uh, Ukraine. And similarly, she posted, uh, Commissioner Lvova Belova posted on her website yesterday that, again, to reassure that Russia is uh, following all the rules, uh, said that Ukraine finally gave the names of uh, the children that they want to return, and there are only 11 children, and that's it. And that the fact that uh, Ukraine is saying that there are thousands of children, that they're falsifying information. She also mentions that now she helped to return all the children who were delayed in camps, and then and that there are only six children who are, haven't returned. And, uh, and in the same statement, uh, she talks about the, the children that are in Russia, that they are not adopted, but they're just under guardianship, which is more temporary way of settlement of children. And uh, obviously all of these things are untrue. But again, in the same statement, we have a statement from the Minister of Education about how the children, how Ukrainian children in Russia receive patriotic education about how to, again, uh, be a good citizen of Russia. Obviously, again, in Ukraine, I think a lot of uh, people don't know what to do, especially they are, well, the, the victims of, of this crime when they are separated from uh, their children. Obviously, they're trying different ways, uh, and uh, including working with volunteers, uh, both in Ukraine and Russia, trying to return their kids. And I think the returns that I've seen, at least in Ukrainian media, were actually Ukrainian volunteer organizations that helped Ukrainian mothers to go around Europe to Russia and bring those children back. But from what I understood, it's mostly children from the camps. But it doesn't seem that that's possible when it's children that were taken from orphanages, uh, orphanages from hospitals, and now obviously adopted. 
So uh, again, I think it's very difficult for the families uh, in Ukraine because, again, no one knows who to ask uh, for help. Uh, obviously, uh, Ukrainian government does what it can, but it is also in the middle of hostilities. I think it has been helpful to have this website that was started by Daria Gersimchuk, who is a, a child commissioner in Ukraine, Children of War, that uh, does uh, collect the information of children that were forcibly uh, transferred, but Yes, I, I don't think that uh, Ukraine so far has been very successful in returning the children. Yeah, and from what you say, that really does sound like doubling down from the Russian side on what they're doing. Thank you both for, yeah, we kind of took a, like a really speedy flight through all these things that have to do with forcible transfer of children in Ukraine. I wanted to uh, finish off the podcast. We always have our asymmetrical haircuts question. And one is always, is there anything that we should have asked you more about that we should know about this, but didn't? I think uh, if there were any additional questions, it would be about really what is, you know, unique about this set of crimes in a historical context. And and Yulia, once again, is the legal expert. I'm not, but the first trial um, at Nuremberg was about the Germanification of Jewish children by the Nazis. And looking at that and looking at other incidents in war where children have been taken as a part of the conduct of war, internal political conflicts, such as in Argentina, most notably uh, Chile, Guatemala, this is the most industrialized and routinized theft of children since World War II. And I think that people need to understand the scope and scale here, even in, in the minimal information we have, is uh, astounding in terms of that uh, special intent element. And, you know, not trying to have a finding here from a non-lawyer about genocide, but to, to look at the component act of the forcible transfer part of the Rome statute as a subcomponent of genocide, um, this fits it to a T. It is almost as if you are describing the, this program. And, and so I, I would just want your listeners to understand this is not just bad in terms of what is happening in Ukraine. It is a historic moment in terms of the crime, in terms of the response to the crime by ICC in the international community. And I don't know what's going to happen next, but that this issue is, and I'm not saying this because I, I've, I've worked on it, but this, because I've worked on it, I can say that what is happening now has historic implications for both connecting to the past and past crimes, but also pointing towards the future in terms of how do we ensure that children and their special protected status in war, that this moment of accountability provides into the future a shield for children in terms of its impact on prevention of these types of abuses elsewhere beyond Ukraine? That's my, my hope. Regardless, I also want Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova-Belova to take a trip to the Netherlands, but in addition to that, um, I, I, I think that this moment uh, can be ho hopefully a, a, a protective one. The la very last thing I would say is that I love talking 
with Ukrainians um, because there's such cynicism in the West and in Western media about ICC indictments. And when I talk to Ukrainians, it is it, it fills me with hope because there's there's a sense, not naively, but a, a sense of how important the indictments are, regardless of what happens next, in the fact that they validate the anguish of the Ukrainian people. And I, I think often in the United States, uh, you know, I'm walking around at the dog park and people are like, oh, that's great, but how much does it really matter? And I talk to Ukrainians and justice matters by calling things by their right names. Yulia, is there something that you want to highlight that we didn't uh, ask you about? Yes, uh, I would like to echo uh, Nathaniel's focus on prevention and hopefully for the future that's what we'll do, but uh, also to acknowledge that in this situation, unfortunately, there is no, even if the war is over and Putin doesn't have power in Russia, repatriating Ukrainian children would be will be very difficult particularly, for example, because they are of all these different ages, starting from f four months old, uh, they arguably might have found a nice family in Russia. Uh, that, that is a possibility. And it will be a difficult question in terms of, well, first of all, just finding them uh, because their names were changed. Uh, they were dispersed all over Russia. But then again, uh, if they lived already in Russia for a couple of years, how to get them back to Ukraine uh, and to their family members. Uh, this would be very difficult for these children. So uh, I think, like, obviously, I'm not arguing that they shouldn't be returned, but uh, I think we should acknowledge that it's a, a very difficult situation and hence it is obviously easier to prevent it rather than deal with the consequences. But I also wanted to uh, highlight, and uh, I think, again, Nathaniel uh, briefly talked about it, about history and how we should look at special intent and just generally this events uh, and these actions by Russia, these actions don't come from nothing. Uh, so Ukraine and people living in Ukraine has experienced colonial violence and oppression for centuries. So many of the practices that the Russian Federation is now using uh, are the actions and methods of the Soviet Union and Russian Empire. So for example, filtration camps, deportations, these are all not new things uh, to Ukrainians. And that's why I, I think that uh, when we started hearing about this forcible transfer of children, deportations, that's what was in the mind of Ukrainians, that we've lived through it already. And uh, a lot of it reminds us of, again, of this colonial oppression, uh, discrimination, and potentially uh, genocide. But uh, I would like to finish by saying that also want to highlight, because we talk about the role of the ICC and also praising the role of Ukrainian government, but I think we also need to praise uh, the work of Ukrainian grassroots organizations and uh, human rights uh, practitioners, lawyers, who have uh, done uh, incredible work in documenting human rights uh, violations. And with particular focus on uh, deportation of children, I wanted to highlight the work of the Regional Center for Human Rights and Kharkiv Human Rights Protection Group, because uh, they have worked on this issue a lot and they're on the ground. So a lot of sort of successes in the ICC, uh, it's their role. And the final, final question that we ask both of you, maybe start with you, Yulia, is, is there anything you'd like to recommend in the way of either reading or listening to or 
even watching material and it can be in your professional area or it can be something much more casual instead what's on your netflix queue or what's on your nightstand that you're reading at the moment sure it's potentially well it's not legal but i would recommend the podcast uh, ukrainian spaces uh, this is a podcast run by ukrainians and uh, it is about ukrainian identity and lived experience of ukrainians so they started this two ukrainians started it in march of 2022 and uh, it has been very interesting to listen to and i think also this uh, this war this uh, new aggression uh, made a lot of ukrainians to think about their identity and who we are as Ukrainians and uh, what kind of future we would like to build and also connect it again to identity. I would recommend a book by uh, Olga Onu, The Zelensky Effect. So she talks about civic national identity in Ukraine and uh, using the example of our president, who is Russian-speaking Jew from Krivirik, which is like the east of the country, but still he <laughs> considers himself a Ukrainian. There are a lot of Ukrainian people like that. Uh, so I think uh, if, and if, if there are people who still think that if you speak Russian, you're Russian, or you're, if you're ethnically Russian, you can't be a Ukrainian. I think that book provides uh, a lot of insight. Thank you very much. Nathaniel, do you want to tell us what's on your, I don't know if you have a podcast uh, list or uh, your nightstand or your Netflix queue? Probably, I would say, The Justice Cascade by Catherine Sicking of uh, Harvard's Kennedy School. I go back to that book a lot when I get discouraged because it's an incredible piece of scholarship that shows how domestic prosecutions for gross abuses of human rights have had a preventative effect. And so it's really important because war crimes investigation, human rights investigation is a long form pursuit to see how these types of investigations and accountability efforts do matter in the, the long haul, and that can be quantified in a scholarly way. So Justice Cascade, Catherine Sicking, check it out. Thank you both so much for taking the time on a Friday night for Yulia on a Friday morning for Nathaniel to talk to us about this. I know we just scratched the surface of what you both are doing. Of course, we will link to both the article uh, that Yulia did and uh, Nathaniel's research, and we'll keep watching for more to come out, especially in that case from Nathaniel's side, who is promising that the research is continuing, uh, and we we'll keep you updated with any more that comes out of there. Um, thank you very much for, for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast. Created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.